I'm Elizabeth Hill, and this is 51%. In the book Martha Graham's Cold War, The Dance of American Diplomacy, historian Victoria Phillips illustrates the dance icon's four-decade reign as the country's premier cultural ambassador. Graham toured on behalf of every seated American president, from Dwight Eisenhower to Ronald Reagan. Phillips, a one-time student of Graham's, spoke with 51%'s Allison Dunn in September 2020, about why she wrote the book. The reason that um, I began writing the book um, actually goes back to my first childhood experience of um, wanting a career, um, which was that um, I saw Martha Graham on stage and I saw her work, Diversion of Angels, um, when I was 16, and I thought, I want to do that. Um, She was extraordinary. Her dancers were beautiful. The work summed up for me the abstraction of love, its passion in red, its joy in yellow, um, its purity represented by the woman in white. Um, And um, so I had um, an immediate fascination for Martha Graham and the world of modern dance and began studying with her basically the next day and went into, I was lucky enough to be brought up in New York and to be able to go to her studio in the late 1970s. Um, So I had a fascination with Graham that um, I became a very good waitress, as the saying goes, um, and ended up in in the profession of history and became fascinated by Graham again. You know, let's talk about her choreography. And, you know, what it said about American values that State Department officials were hoping to export. The most um, important piece of, I would say, propaganda that Martha Graham brought with her um, was um, the pro-American work, such as Appalachian Spring with the Pulitzer Prize-winning score by Aaron Copeland, originally known as Ballet for Martha, It's the story of the American frontier told with archetypes, the bride, the husbandman, the preacher and his followers, and the pioneering woman. And this is true, humble Americana, as the State Department representatives said. But she also brought very important messages, um, such as the ability to to attract, to seduce the hearts and minds of mankind, which was part of the Cold War agenda, to bring everyone over to the Western side, the the democratic free way of thinking. And with that, she brought work such as Diversion of Angels, which I've spoken about, um, which talks about human essential emotions, love, lamentation, her work about grief, Um, And then also an argument about the sophistication of the United States with her works based on Greek myth, um, and um, particularly Clytemnestra um, or Medea or Jocasta, the story of Oedipus. Um, So she brought, as one person said um, of Martha Graham, she brought this smorgasbord to the State Department, and then they could pick and choose which works would work in each of the different locations, depending on what messages needed um, to get put forward. And I believe that it is her fundamental belief in 
freedom um, and the freedom of the mind um, and some essential human emotions um, that made her so so valuable. Where was her stance uh, politically? Because here she is, you know, trying to espouse American freedom, you know, being put forth as espousing American freedoms and, and winning other countries over to the Western side, as you just described, yet she disavows political attachments. How was that reconciled? Well, I think that to me this was the most fascinating part of the study um, was that she said, my work is not political. Um, and um, indeed, when I was at the school in 1979 and the company left for what was known as the Jimmy Carter Goodwill Tour as a part of the Camp David Accords to Egypt, Israel, and Amman, uh, that, was, that was very much at the forefront. This is not, my work is not political. Um, and indeed, you know, looking at some very essential things for our country right now, um, such as race, um, she had core beliefs that were useful um, to the United States government from Roosevelt and every single president through Bush, every administration, higher taxes, lower taxes, Social Security, no Social Security, whatever it was, it was this essential belief in freedom and mankind. Um, and in that, um, she believed very strongly that if that she looked at a person and a dancer and the shape of their eyes, the color of their skin, made no difference whatsoever to her. So, And she took an active stance that way it, during the interwar when there were anti-Semitic um, quotas, even in the United States, she hired Jewish dancers and then refused to um, go to uh, Nazi Germany to perform in the Olympics, which would have been a huge coup um, at that point in time. Um, she hired Yuriko out of an internment camp in 1941 um, and traveled the United States with a Japanese dancer as the United States was interning Japanese people. In 1951, she hired Mary Hinkson and Matt Tierney and became the first person to hire African-American dancers into a mainstream modern company tour and perform on Broadway. So um, she had core American beliefs that were sometimes quite far ahead of her time, but then also became useful um, as political statements and, in a sense, propaganda on these tours. Where do you think her most important work was done under which president and why? That's a fascinating question, Allison. Um, of course, her first experience with the presidency would be extremely significant for her, and that was the Roosevelts. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, I like to think of Eleanor Roosevelt as the Oprah of her time. She had syndicated columns, she had a radio show, and she was very involved in the arts and promoting the arts um, to the populace um, through Works Progress Administration programs and the like. And um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt liked Martha Graham and brought her to the White House to perform Frontier, um, the story of, an, uh, of a pioneering woman, and also asked her to do some wonderful performances for the World's Fair. Um, so that, of course, was a very significant um, relationship because it put Graham really on the map um, in um, 1937. And as we can imagine, 
Um, then uh, when she uh, goes to work with Barbara Bush as late as 1989, um, that relationship with the with the White House has spanned um, Betty Ford, um, Jackie Onassis, um, and uh, numerous others. Um, so I would say certainly the Roosevelt administration was was the most important as the founding relationship. Um, and then um, Jackie Onassis, who then also edited her her autobiography, um, and um, and Betty Ford, who was a huge influence on Martha Graham in terms of the promotion, and and Barbara Bush. I just wanted to dive a little deeper into gender because you just mentioned all the first ladies, um, or most of the first ladies, um, you know, for the presidents that that she danced abroad. Uh, for relations, diplomatic relations. What was the relationship with the with the first ladies, and how important was that relationship as opposed to with the the president? That is, that's a really interesting question, and I was fascinated because my first response um, a, as a historian after seeing the relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt was to trace the first ladies, and indeed that didn't work very well um, because um, Beth Truman. Uh, Mamie Eisenhower um, really didn't have much interest in in Graham at all, as far as I could see. Um, Lady Bird Johnson did. Um, Jackie Onassis was Jackie Kennedy Onassis was smitten with Graham, and not only helped um, clearly with a tour in 1962, but then did a lot of fundraising, uh, sat on the board for a while. And at Doubleday became the editor of um, Graham's autobiography. It was published in 1991, so there was a long-term relationship there. Um, under Reagan, um, I found pictures of Graham's letters be- um, between uh, to to Reagan and his letters back to her. You know, bless you, Martha. Bless you, Ronnie. Uh, and there is no indication that Nancy had much tolerance for this at all. Um, and Barbara Bush, the opposite. Um, Barbara and and Martha seemed um, to be in, in, having a lovely time together with their letters, playing with the dogs in the White House. Um, and I think the president did not have as much interest in her. And this is one of Martha Graham's geniuses, is she knows exactly who to go to within administration. So she said she never worked with the Nixon administration, but she did work with Kissinger. Interesting, <laughs> yeah. She was, she was really good. Dance wasn't her only strong suit. <laughs> Let's That's just put correct. it that way, right? <laughs> um, you know, we're talking about, about the presidents and, and first ladies and, and dignitaries and all of that. What about kind of the, the war between women in the sense that she's Martha Graham's going abroad and then, you know, there's Russian ballerinas there, you know, in these countries where the press is making them out to be, you know, war dance wars between the two. Was that going on or was that just in the headlines? What was the personal gain or personal like? I have to be better uh, than than her. Um, I think when it comes to the the ballerina wars, in a sense, it was an apples to oranges fight. So when she first landed in 1955 in in Japan, and it was the Russian ballerina versus Martha. Um, I don't think she was really comparing how high the leg went or anything of that nature. Um, she even went as far as 
as to say that she uses ballet and, in a sense, she made it better. She modernized it. Um, and, indeed, later on, um, her dancers had very strong balletic lines that could compete. Um, and, indeed, there were contests where um, her ballet dancer, I mean, her dancers could do tilts, so stand on one leg and, and tilt over um, in a 180-degree split. Um, and ballerinas could not do that. So there was, you know, there was a competition for sure, um, but it was known as an apples-to-oranges fight. Mm, interesting. What about, let, let's fast forward to today. And do we have any equivalent of the exportation in perhaps a more subtle way um, of the arts? And then what, what might Martha Graham feature choreography-wise uh, to counter what's happening in Russia today? It, that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, and one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was that, unfortunately, there is, I don't believe there's enough happening um, in terms of using the arts as diplomacy. It's a wonderful opportunity. Dance and music um, are both, they, you don't need language. You don't need to speak German or English or Chinese. Um, to understand the beauty and the elegance of movement. I think we saw that very clearly with some of the Chinese spectacles, the Olympics, and, uh, and their dance companies. Um, there is a sense of awe and brilliance that can be communicated cross-culturally without language. And I do wish um, our government would support more of that. Um, uh, since the Cold War, really, these efforts have been um, curtailed extremely significantly. Alvin Ailey right now is really the only company that goes out as far as I know, a small, smaller companies, battery dance and the like. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity in the future as we are um, renegotiating and bridging with other countries um, to, to, do, to do new efforts in, in dance. And then what, what choreography might work today? That's a really interesting question. You know, as Martha said, um, my dance is not modern. It is contemporary. And um, she was always looking um, for the newest way to express things. She would go for um, an essence, um, perhaps in COVID, um, a, a look at mortality um, or, um, or, you know, the, a sense of disease. Um, but she always wanted to end on a, on a high note. She never wanted to end on a low note. Um, and I think she would use film and, and Zoom and Google and whatever new resource there was. Um, for example, you know, she did works um, about the Temple of Dendur um, when the Temple of Dendur was opening at the Metropolitan Museum. So she was always of her time, and I think she'd be using that right now. What would she want her legacy to be, and what is it, and are they the same? She wanted her legacy to be that of a performer, of a dancer. And um, unfortunately, uh, the only tapes we have are of her um, when she is well into her into her 50s for the most part. Um, there are some tapes of her, early tapes of her. But as we know, dance doesn't really translate onto film. My sense is that her legacy is that of, um, a, of a revolutionary genius, someone who could um, look at 
human movement and distill something very distinct out of it that will move an audience. Works like Lamentation that speaks to the depths of lament that a human being will feel, the way one weeps, the way one moves when one weeps or laughs. That's what she could capture. Martha Graham's Cold War, The Dance of American Diplomacy, is published by Oxford University Press. You can hear the full interview on episode 1626. I'm Elizabeth Hill, and this is 51%. In the book Washington's Golden Age, Hope Ridings Miller, The Society Beat, and The Rise of Women Journalists, Albany Times Union reporter, critic, and author Joseph Dalton, also a WAMC contributor, chronicles the life of this pioneering woman journalist who covered the powerful vortex of politics, diplomacy, and society during a career that stretched from FDR to LBJ. After joining the Post staff, she was the only woman on the city desk. Later, she had a nationally syndicated column. For 10 years, she edited Diplomat magazine and then wrote three books about Washington life. And Joseph Dalton is her cousin. 51% Joe Donahue spoke with Dalton in 2019. When you think of the accomplishments, you know, I think of I think of this in a in a war setting. Um, I know my say my father fought in World War II, and I just knew that growing up. But it wasn't I didn't really understand what that meant until I started to hear the stories, and I grew up. And then you understand what that is of oh God, what he did, which is was quite amazing. Did was it the same way? I mean, you had those those books on the coffee table, and then suddenly you look at this life, and you think, oh wow. Exactly. You put that into a context. Yes. Getting down into what it really meant. I knew she was society editor for The Post. I knew she wrote three books. And she she repeated that to me. But she never told me about how LBJ liked to kiss her on the cheek. She never told me about being 33 years old and, and well, maybe it was 36. So she was in Washington only a few years. She was still in her 30s. And her and her husband had dinner at the in the White House family quarters with the Roosevelts. That's something you talk about in your life. And right. she maybe because she had just done so many of those kinds of things, she never told me about them. And we had many meals together. So it was definitely a gosh once the research began. When you're in a job like that and you've done that, even when you're in your 70s, are you still basically doing that even though you may not be the society editor of the Washington Post? She maintained a social presence well through her 80s in Washington. So she she wasn't coming home in the next morning writing up the right. parties she went to, but it was in her blood to be part of the, the to be out there on the scene. And I benefited from that. She just liked to go out and about. She called it going about. And I was a music student at Catholic University, and she came to my recitals. And uh, that was that was really sweet of her. What was it like? I mean, let, let's not forget here that uh, I mean, the subtitle, the second part of the subtitle of the book is the rise of women journalists. So. She's at the forefront of this. How many women were working for the Washington Post when she started? 
I don't have a good answer to that uh, number, but when she started, uh, Eugene Meyer had just purchased the paper, and one of the ways he was making a distinction and rebuilding it, and let me say, we all know the Washington Post today. Right. It's the survivor of the Washington newspapers, and it became famous during Watergate. In the 30s, it was in the f- number five out of five newspapers. So it was not a prestigious gig necessarily, but they needed talent. And she began writing in the women's pages. Usually the women's columns in major cities were syndicated, what we call wire copy. Mr. Meyer hired a team of women, and Hope was one of them. She did that for about three years, and then she was on the city desk. The only whim- Here's some perspective for you in terms of numbers. When she was on the city desk for eight months, she was one woman out of fi- against or with 50 men. Wow. Did she talk about that at all? About what that was, what that was like? Again, I put it in a context of what that was like. No, uh, she did. She did not get into much details and things like that. But she did make clear that she was not a women's liber. Uh, she said repeatedly in interviews and things that I found that she never faced discrimination, and she was very much of the mindset that women should. Um, do less demanding rights and do working hard and that the rights will come. And she she became very popular in the party scene because she had a nice sense of humor and she had little bon mots that she liked to say. And one of them was, uh, I don't believe in equal rights for women. I want special privileges. <laughs> and it's a cute saying. Um, in terms of whether she faced discrimination, though, I found a couple of things that were went against her argument that she never had any uh, difficulties or uh, impediments because of her gender. And during that period, she was on the city desk. She said one of her jobs was to go to check the drawer of her editor's desk to make sure he had a bottle that would last him through the night. And if there wasn't enough to drink, she had to go across the street to the liquor store. Oh, wow. Oh, they, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Mike does that for me. <laughs> um, what is... <laughs> uh, when... She started, uh, you, you tell this early in the book, but um, uh, Kay Meyer, right, is is becomes Catherine Graham and was one of the people who was working on that woman's page. She was the copy girl. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, talk about. I mean, obviously, she's a publisher's daughter, but she's working from the bottom up, right? Exactly. She, Kay, the little appearance of Kay Graham, the future great Kath, Kay Meyer, as she was known then, and the, who became the great Catherine Graham, it's one of many walk-ons and bigger appearances of tons of famous people that are in the book. Um, along with covering the party scene, Hope covered the various celebrities that came to town. There's Mary Pickford, Spencer Tracy, Walt Disney are all in the book when the, the Royals came in 1938. I have a whole chapter about the garden party. The story of the the Royals and the Roosevelts going to Hyde Park and sharing hot dogs is well known. But a couple of days before, there was a garden party at the British Embassy. And there was a hellabaloo of who got on the guest list. It was very exclusive, even though there were 1,200 people. So there's all kinds of great names and great moments in the book. When when it came to those invitations, she was invited because... I mean, there was a trust to know that when she was invited she would be able to report. convey and report what was going on in a in what they would see as a positive way i assume yes she said it was generally the, generally speaking where society editors were supposed to put the best spin on anything they could if she was invited it was with an understanding that she was a reporter and one of her friends there weren't many friends left by the time i was writing the book but one friend said if you saw hope at a party across the way you generally knew it was going to be written up she, however she functioned as a guest and um, i was lucky enough to work 
work from an oral history that had been conducted, and it was a great interview over five sessions with her. And she says, I never carried a notebook. It, it would have thrown off the whole dynamic. But she did have a little notebook in her bosom, and sometimes she'd run off to the, to the ladies' room <laughs> like and do. whip out a pen and paper and take down what she just heard. So if, if Senator fill-in-the-blank gets schnockered and puts a lampshade on his head, that probably isn't going to get reported. Unfortunately, no. Yeah. There were some others who did that, um, and it, it became more of the thing, but Hope would not have done that kind of thing. That, right. She was a lady, and that carried over into her writing. She had a dignity, and she had a respect for people. And that's why one reason the book is called Washington's Golden Age. What a contrast do we have today? She she and and her peers, not just the journalists, but the, 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 lead, the powerful men in the city, conducted themselves with dignity, maybe Maybe there were some lampshades along the way, but they weren't rushing out and telling all the secrets right away. But you think of the of the time of even Roosevelt going to his grave without many people knowing that he had polio. You you think of uh, well, it was well known in Washington that that President Kennedy had affairs, but that was never reported by anybody. Um, yeah, it's a very different time, and she was operating really under those rules. Exactly. She said uh, in the Kennedy chapter, uh, there I have some quotes from her. She said it, there was seemed to always be a Kennedy scandal about to erupt every week, something new. And um, she the, the, the hostesses were one of her great focuses. And she said the number one hostess was always assumed to be the first lady. But Mrs. Uh, Kennedy basically took a year off from being first lady. Yeah. And there was an absence of leadership in the social scene. And that didn't exactly show up in the writing. She continued to put the base, best spin on it. I think you make a very good point, and we'll, we'll have to end with this. But I think you make a very good point in the book that, that and, and tell me if my, if my assumption here is off base, but it seems that many people dismiss the society column and think, oh, well, you know, that's just, okay, that's fine, that's gossip, that's this or that. But, but that's the, I mean, that's the engine of the city, especially at that time. And that's, what, that's when things happened. Exactly. She said uh, the social scene is where Washington does business. I'd also like to make a case, though, that Wash every, back in the day in the mid-century, every newspaper had a society reporter, and that was often the means or the entry door for women into journalism. Uh, so it's the early jobs of women are not to be discounted and forgotten. And for Hope, though, she was a society editor of a different sort because – she was covering the powerful and elite on the social scene in Washington during the war when the city exploded with life and the government became what it is today. Washington's Golden Age, Hope Ridings Miller, The Society Beat, and The Rise of Women Journalists is published by Roman and Littlefield. You can hear the full interview on episode 1537. Thanks for joining us for this week's 51%. I'm your guest host, Elizabeth Hill. Thanks to Ian Pickus and Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartalk. Our theme music is Lolita by Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 51% is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this episode again or share it with your friends, sign up for our podcast or visit WAMC. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 51% Radio.